I'm Jim Brown, your Bible teacher at Grace and Truth Ministries. I'm teaching to you about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a millennium uh, that lasts a thousand years. It's not. And I don't have any doubt that it's not. The title here is The Kingdom of God is Here. It's the church. The Bible says in Luke, the 17th chapter, when the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, said, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? That had an exact purpose for them asking that. Because the kingdom of God was Israel. That's a title for Israel. And the church is spiritual Israel. The church is called in Hebrews 12. Heavenly Jerusalem. Is Jerusalem in Israel? Heavenly Jerusalem. The church. Of the firstborn. Oh, I could get into firstborn. The firstborn was supposed to get the inheritance of Israel. And God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. The firstborn in the Old Testament was rejected. The firstborn of Israel was Reuben. He was rejected because he was un- unstable as water. So God gives the kingdom, gives all of Reuben's rights. Reuben should have been king, priest. I've said this before. Priest. And he should have had the inheritance. But since Reuben was, God crossed him out, and it was the head of the patriarch's right to appoint who he wanted to when someone was not qualified to be the firstborn. And and he wasn't and so Jacob who was who was also called Israel, his name was changed to Israel in Genesis the thirty second chapter, Genesis thirty two, it Jacob became Israel means to prevail with God. Well, God gives the priesthood to Levi, the thirdborn of Jacob. He gives the he gives the kingship to the fourthborn Judah, and he gives the inheritance to eleventhborn Joseph through his secondborn son Ephraim. And during the days of Jesus only northern only southern judah was back from the captivity southern judah excuse me i got circled the wrong thing only southern judah was back from the captivity that was the tribe of judah and benjamin and northern Israel was called the Ten Lost Tribes and that was headed up by Ephraim the second born son of joseph so They said if the man who owned the property wasn't there, they were not at home. So without Ephraim possessing, without Ephraim coming back, at the end of time, God will bring all these tribes together in one, and that's already happened today.
or it happened in May 14, 1948. Now, they said to Jesus in Luke 17, 20 and 21, are you going to restore the kingdom? What they meant, Israel, only southern Judah was back from the captivity. Southern Judah. Northern Israel was called Samaria. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes ruled the show in Israel. They were in southern Judah. They hated northern Israel because northern Israel, when the Assyrians came in and to carry them away, they not only carried away most of them, but they moved in, the soldiers moved in, intermarried with the women, and brought their sun and tree worship into Israel and mixed it with Jehovah worship. And that's why Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, You worship, you know not what. You got a mixture of Jehovah and Baal in the grove here. So, during the days of Jesus, southern Judah was back, and northern Israel was just mixed up in the world. And Rome was ruling Israel as a satellite kingdom. It was not a nation. It was an independent nation. During the days of Jesus, two tribes were back, that's all. And the owner wasn't there, so they wouldn't consider it at home. And everybody was saying, are you going to restore the kingdom? They thought, well, if you are the Messiah, you'll mount an army up and conquer Rome. That's not the way he's going to come. And Jesus looks at him when they say, are you going to restore the kingdom? He said, the kingdom doesn't come with observation, for the kingdom of God or Israel is in you. And it has to be in us. That is the church. Now, I keep saying all these preachers around America, they say Israel is the, it is the, uh, they say the millennium is the kingdom of God. That's just not true. Let's go back. I'm going to have to take you back to Revelation And this is where they come up with this. Revelation 20. This is where they come up with a thousand, with a thousand year reign. And they say, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit. I keep saying bottomless pit does not mean a hole in the ground that has no bottom. Bottomless pit is the word abusos. You say, Jim, you keep saying this. I've got to keep resetting the picture. A-B-U-S-S-O-S. It, abusos is the word bottomless pit. Bottomless pit. And it comes from bathos means something with great knowledge. And the construction of the word bottomless pit has an alpha before the word bathos, which is called the negative particle. That's a negative. It negates the rest of the word. It means no knowledge. That's what bottomless pit means. And it's talking about outside of Israel, no one in the civilized world 
had any truth about the gospel until Acts 2. That's when God poured out of His Spirit on all flesh. Red, yellow, white, black, and brown flesh. Or the Gentiles. Gentiles. Now, what I'm going to get to as quick as I can, I want to get to this thousand years. And then he says, He cast him into the bottom of his pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him. Seal is the word sfragedzo. It means a stamp or a signet of authority. S-P-H-R-A-G-I-Z-O. We get the word, it's the word that comes from sphragis, S-P-H-R-A-G-I-S, which is the word signature. It means this belongs to God who put his approval on the angel binding Satan. Then he says, And cast him into the place of no knowledge, and shut him up, and set an authority over him, that he should deceive the nations no more. Now what he did, deceive is the word dio, means to forbid. Binding and loosing, binding and loosing, when you read that and it says that he bound Satan for a thousand years, bound, binding and loosing was a rabbi's term. To bind meant to, it was the word dio, meant to forbid or declare unlawful God's going to make it unlawful for the Satan for for Satan to do to confuse or deceive certain people. Luo is the exact opposite of that. Loose Luo. This was a rabbi's term when a new rabbi would come into the temple or into the synagogue, he would hand up a book of the law and they'd say, bind and loose according to the book. Go by the book only. Bind and loose according to the Bible. Go by the Bible only. Don't add to it or take away. And Luo meant to permit or declare lawful. That's a rabbi's term. You can get that out of of uh, Mr. Edersheim's Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Open up your Life and Times to the index in the back of it and look up bind, and it'll tell you bind and loose. And then go to the pages where it tells you to go to. Read the page or two before it and then the page two after it, and you can see clearly that it was a rabbi's term. When the rabbi would come into the into the synagogue, they'd say bind and loose according to the book. So that's what this word means. And he's forbidden. He laid hands on the dragon, Dracon, to fascinate that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound Dio, 
And I'm going to go in some other places on this where they talks about binding, uh, binding the law with someone. And it bound him a thousand years. Now, you don't bound Satan. This is an angel of God binding or forbidding him from deceiving a certain group of people for, it says, thousand. Let me say this one more time, or let me give you some information on this. There were no zeros in the Greek language. That's why they put thousand. Because there were no zeros in Greek in the first century. I've got some information on this. I've got several books with information. I went into my library last night, and I just started looking at some history books, men who knew things about history. I had a book on the outline of history by H.G. Wells. You remember him? He wrote a lot of uh, a lot of fiction books, science fiction books, along with biblical books. He was a brilliant man. In fact, he was kind of like Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov was a was a scientist who wrote fictional books, and I've got one of Isaac Zimov's book on the double helix. That's the uh, center of the cellular structure. But this is what he said. This is what H.G. Wells says. I'm trying to... I'm going to show you that the... that the zero, it took hundreds of years after... John is writing the book of Revelation approximately 96 A.D., it took up to about year 800 A.D. before the development of zero. That's why it cannot have one zero zero zero. In fact, they said any multiple of ten, a hundred, or a thousand was a form of the original number, one. They didn't count these. What? Let me read these to you, and I'll kind of show you some things. And Mr. H.G. Wells, he lived back in the 1800s. He says, in mathematics, says Thatcher and Swill, the Arabs built on the foundations of the Greek mathematicians. And you're going to find out the Arabs are the ones who claim to have invented zero. They didn't know what to do with it. The origin of the so-called Arabic numerals is obscure. The Arabic numerals are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. And that's all they knew how to count up to. They didn't know how to go any further. Let me read some things to you on this. And I'm reading this so you'll see. They couldn't have said one zero zero zero. The word thousand is the word kilia. C-H-I-L-I-A. Kilia. Or kilioi. C-H-I-L-O-I. And both of them are plural. You would not call one plural. When you 
get up to 999. That is an adjective. All numbers up to 999, other than the, other than the ones with zero, like 100 in them, or 500. Numbers has taken a lifetime to develop our numbering system. Because they, they had no idea what to do to come up with it. The Arabs claim they invented it, but the best scholars say it was invented and created by the Hindus, by the Muslims, by the Hindu people. And then he says, under Theodoric the Great, Botheus made use of certain signs which were in part very like the nine digits these are the nine digits. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Those are the the Arabic numerals. The nine digits which we now use. Do you know that's all we use? Nine. There was no zeros back then. They didn't know where to go from nine. And most of those they named after alphabet numbers. They said that I'll just say this to you. One writer said they said that this, the dollar sign with one slit in it, meant one dollar. And they said the dollar sign with two slits in it didn't mean two dollars. It meant eleven dollars. <laughs> they had strange ways of developing numbers. And the reason I'm showing this to you is to show this takes a long time to understand. A lot of study to understand what zero was about. One of the pupils of Gerbert also used signs which were still like ours. But the zero, it is stated, was unknown until the ninth century, till 800 A.D. It wasn't even known. They didn't even have a name for it in the Greek. So when they counted to nine, they didn't know what to do. When they come up with ten, what they're going to do is start the Arabic numerals all over again. One, two, three, four, five. Except what they're going to do is put another one, 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 up to nineteen. And then they're going to start two, one, two, 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 three, two, four. And then they're going to get up to three, one, three, two. Everything has to be, they have to have a determiner before it to show how many twos this is. This is a two, three, a two, a two, four, two, five, two, six. They had to create that and invent that over time. They didn't know what to do after they got to nine. So it couldn't be thousand years. There's no way. It was stated was unknown until the ninth century. Zeros wasn't known until the ninth century. When it was invented by a Muslim mathematician named Muhammad ibn Musa, who also was the first to use the decimal notation, who gave the digits the value of position. This, however, is disputed by many Indians, not American Indians. 
where did the American Indian get his name? Well, Columbus thought he was getting a short route to to Asia. Instead of getting over to Asia, he landed at San Salvador, and he missed it by thousands of miles. So he called these guys that he run into Indians. The Indians, the true Indians, are in India. This harvest is disputed by many people from India who claim the zero in the decimal system as a distinctly Indian contribution. I'm saying this so you'll understand. There was no one zero, zero, zero. Thousand years. Now, let me tell you something else. I said this last time I preached. This is a book. I'm showing you that thousand is not what is in. I don't believe the men who who translate the Bible knew anything about numbers. And what it was, they were just, it was half Protestants, half Catholics that translated the King James Bible. I don't believe most people have studied what zeros were about. And in this book, this is, the words of mathematics an entomological dictionary on mathematical terms used in English by Stephen Schwartzman. This is a math book just on the origins of math. It has nothing to do with the Bible. And they tell you in this that zero or zeros, which is a which is a cardinal number, that means cardinal means it's one, two, three, so forth. A variant of the Arabic C-I-F-R, meaning empty. That's what zero means. Empty. When they got to this place at ten, they didn't know what to put there. And I'm saying this to let you know that they did not know this. And then he says, when you see zero as part of a number written in a place value notation, you're keeping a particular place empty. The Arabic word took on varying forms in European languages, including Zeraphim, Zephiro, and Cipher. You hear people talking about Cipher and they're from out in the country. Cipher means to work arithmetic in its simplest state. The modern form zero seems to have, have appeared in print for the first time in 1491 in De Arithmetica Opusculum by Philippi Calendri. So it didn't imprint, it didn't appear in any print till 1491 AD. There can't be one, one, two, three. The word thousand is the word kilia. But thousand is a noun. 999 is not a noun. That is an adjective. Tells how many. This doesn't tell so much how many. You've got to have a determiner before the thousand to tell whether it's two, three, four, five thousand. So when you see kilia, it means at least in its plural, it means two two of these kilia, whatever it is. And kilia 
is the next number after 999, which would be 1,000, but it can be 2,000. It has to be 2,000. Now, I'm going to read something to you out of this book. This is... I thought it was a strange book when I first bought it years ago. It's called The Nothing... That is the natural history of zero. Took forever to come up with zero and construct our numbering system. They didn't know what to do. Now I'm going to show you how it came into being. I want you to... All right. This is written by Robert Kaplan. This guy must have been a genius mathematician because he goes into all kinds of calculus in here. But what he's doing is just giving a history of it. Back the beginning of zero in India before 876. After 800 A.D. And so if John wrote Revelation in 96 A.D., this is a lot long, a lot of time later than 96 A.D. I'm just trying to show you that the Bible couldn't have said 1000. You won't find numbers in the Bible unless they're spelled out. Because the Greeks and the Greek was spoken all over the world in the first century. But they didn't have a numbering system like the like the Egyptians, like the Arabics, and particularly back like the the Muslim Hindu people. They were the ones who were getting advanced more than anybody else. So if you are willing to strain your eyes to make out dim figures in the bright haze, this is a haze, he says, why trouble to do this? Because every story, like every dream, has a deep point. And then he says, this deep point for us is the cleft between the ancient world around the Mediterranean and the ancient world of India, because that's where zero started. There is a city of flowers not far from the ruined palace, once built by genie. G-E-N-I-I. That's the same thing that Jews call demons. So this is a fairy tale to a sense. But it stands stands the astronomer, Ariba Hata, A-R-Y-A-B-H-A-T-A, around 500 A.D. This is long after Revelation is written. But some say that there were two Arahabatas with opposite reputations. Their names mean learned man. The text of his that survive is hopelessly doctored. In other words, that means somebody's added or taken away from it. It is a peculiar mixture of pearl shells and sour dates. In other words, things that are true and things that are not true. As the Arab historian Al-Biruni put it a thousand years ago, the product of careful observations and careless borrowings, in other words, good and bad, 
Whatever the case, Aribahata wanted a concise way to store, not calculate, but store large numbers. 152,570, so forth, and hit on a strange scheme. If we hadn't yet our positional notation where the eight, and he's going to show us here, he says the eight in 9871. Let me go a little slow on this. He says the eight. In 9,871, the eight occupies the hundreds. And the nine occupies the thousands place. Can you see that? It's pretty simple. The thousands. So he said, here's the way they would write it. You, You don't realize just how the developing numbers was and it's important to understand that to understand a thousand years doesn't mean what it means to us you have to know that it's kilia that it's plural it has to be two thousand or more and then he says when they wrote this number they would put 90 8 8 70 Ninety. That'd be nine thousand eight eight seven seven T seven tens. Yeah, they wrote things out, and they they just didn't write them the way we do. They were in a stage of development for hundreds of years, for a thousand years, developing them how to say 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. They didn't have that. And then he says, he made up nonsense words whose syllables stood for digits. A digit is 1, 2, 3, Four. Each one of those is a digit. And then he says, there is clearly no zero in his system. None. His word for place is K-H-A. K-H-A. That's the word place. They didn't know what to call zero. So they called it K-H-A. This is a place of nothing, and they didn't know what to call it. And I'm trying to simply show you that thousand is not one zero zero zero. Not That just shows you how little the translators knew about the word thousand. That's all I'm trying to express to you. Then he says, the word for place is K-H-A. The K-H-A later became one of the commonest Indian words for zero. They put K-H-A everywhere. Who next can make out the haze? What is that haze itself? 
It's a haze because we couldn't figure out zero. And he goes on to talk about, once again, while having a symbol for zero matters. The philosophy and religion of the Hindus uniquely fitted them for the invention of our zero. What I'm getting at, there was no zeros in thousand years. A symbol for zero like making that they're inventing a symbol for zero is like making nirvana dynamic. Nirvana is where you go into a, a quiet state making it dynamic. You can't make nirvana dynamic. The decline of the West, Oswald Spengler wrote, that zero was that refined creation of wonderful abstractive power which for the Indian soul that conceived it as a base for the positional numeration was nothing more nor less than the key to the meaning of zero's existence. It takes a Brahmic soul to perceive the numbers as self-evident. This is a very interesting book. I thought I'd read some of it to you. Let you know. When you get into this word thousand, where this was written in 96 AD, it's not one zero zero zero. Forget that. It's kilia. And if it is plural, it's at least two kilia. Kilia comes after 999 but it it turns into a noun just like dozen thousand is a noun just like dozen is 12 eggs but it's one dozen thousand is one zero 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 to us but if it's plural it has to be two zero 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 in our language now I'm going to repeat some things and take you through some of these things about the kingdom of God, which we started the last time. I never did believe. There's a verse here in this chapter. Confused me as a little kid when my father would preach about the millennium. I didn't see how anybody else could understand it. Let's read down to it. And cast him into the place of no knowledge, that's verse 3, and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. Let me remind you, the word nation is the word ethnos. We get our word ethnic from that. The word is also, besides nation, it's the exact word Gentile. There has to be a time period of at least 2,000 years where the Gentiles are not deceived. Not deceived. There's only one place in all of history where a set of Gentiles are not deceived. There is a set of Gentiles from Acts 2 from Acts 2 
This is where God pours out of His Spirit on all flesh are the Gentiles. The Gentiles had not received all through the Old Testament back to Adam. The Gentiles had been cut out of the truth. They didn't get the truth from Adam until Acts 2, where God says, I'll pour out of my spirit on all flesh, all men. And that's during this time period when a certain group of Gentiles cannot be fooled. And this is the Gentile elect church. It's been right at 2,000 years so far. If Acts 2 was 50 days, Passover was 50 days, or Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, if Pentecost was 50 days, and Jesus was somewhere around 33 years old, And 50 days after the Passover, that's when God gives his truth to all flesh. Then 33 A.D., 2,000 years later, we run 2,033, 2,035. I'm not saying that's when the end's coming. I'm saying that makes more sense than coming up with this 1,000 years over here. I just don't believe. The main reason I don't believe there's a thousand year reign is the Bible says there won't be. When I go back, well, I'll go back in just a minute. When you go back over to into when the Bible speaks that in the tenth chapter of Revelation, the tenth chapter. When Christ has got one foot on the land and the other on the sea at the signing of the seventh trumpet and we won't be we will be changed at the last trump or the seventh trumpet the seventh trump was the last trump all through the Bible you had seven trumpets as as uh, Joshua marched around Jericho. Seven priests with seven trumpets. And they marched around Jericho seven times, as God told them to. And then they blew the trumpet at the seventh trump as the last circle around Jericho. And, it's, and they all shouted and the walls fell down immediately. Judgment was immediately at the signing of the seventh trumpet. In Matthew the in Matthew the twenty fourth chapter, Jesus is telling the apostles about the end of time. And he says, After the tribulation of those days in verse twenty nine, after the tribulation of all these things that's going to happen. The Lord sends his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. The last one hadn't sounded yet. And then he says over there in 
in Revelation 10 and 7. When the seventh of the last trumpet sounds, the mystery of God, which is the church according to the Bible all through New Testament, Ephesians the third chapter, Ephesians the fifth chapter, the mystery is the church. The mystery of God is finished at the signing of the last trump or the seventh trump. Mystery, musturian, means unrevealed to the majority of people. God only reveals himself to whomsoever he will, and that's to few. Most of the people in the world are not going to understand the mystery of God. It comes from muo, meaning to shut the mouth. Most people are not going to understand the mystery. The mystery of God at the signing of the seventh trump is finished, T-E-L-E-I-O-T-E-S. It's complete. The mystery is complete. The last one of the people have come into the fold, and it's over. And time is no more. There cannot be a thousand-year reign after the last trump. There's no time, period. And then he says the same thing over in in the 11th chapter in verse 15. The writer repeats the signing of the seventh trump. He said, when the seventh trump sounds in 10 and 11 and 15, the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And there's not going to be a rising up of people dying during a seven-year tribulation. There's not going to be a seven-year tribulation. Pre-trib rapture is one of the worst occult beliefs that has ever been created in the Bible because there's not a pre-trib rapture. We're going to be taken out at the signing of the last trump. Behold, I'll show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twink of an eye at the last trump. Why can't people see that? I don't know. And at the sounding of the last trump or the seventh trumpet, God conquers all of his enemies. And according to the according to the fifteenth chapter of First Corinthians, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That'll come about at the signing of the seventh or the last trump. Nobody's gonna die. And when you look at these pre trip rapture people, they say, Well, you got seven years of tribulation, and during the seven years of tribulation, people will be dying all the time. But we're going to be raptured out at the beginning of that. How can people be dying when God conquers, when he conquers everything at the coming of Christ, at the signing of the seventh trump? How can there be a thousand-year reign? And they say people are going to be dying all through that thousand-year reign. That that's it's there's nothing in the Bible that even implies that. You guys that teach that which John MacArthur's one. I've been listening to him teach on Revelation in the last week uh, during the day. It's a disaster. John, you are really bad messed up. I I just don't understand how they can come up with this. 
let's go back over here to the 20th chapter and read down to to the coming of Christ that he should deceive the nations in verse 3 no more that he should deceive the Gentiles no more till this let me read it the way I believe it says it till this 2,000 years is fulfilled and after that he must be loosed a little season let me tell you what this actually says it doesn't say after that it says meta that meta means with meta means with and it means along with satan not being able to deceive the gentiles for a 2000 year period after that or with that he'll be loosed at the end of time for a little season i believe he's on the loose right now and I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the thrones. The Bible says God had made us priests and kings, and he said we will judge the world. We're judging the world right now. We're declaring them guilty when they don't believe Christ. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Let me explain the beheading. That's how they killed people in the first century. That's why the Arabs still, they decapitate people, those people that they were going to kill over there, and they followed through with them. They decapitated them, and you can see them in these films decapitating people. So it's not just talking about decapitation. It's any way that the world people decide to kill the believer, whether it's by shooting them, executing them, decapitating them, however, because this was written in the first century and headed for the witness of Jesus and for the, for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither his, and had received his mark upon their foreheads and that's not talking about a literal mark that's talking about in the mind in their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ 2,000 years the reason they reigned with Christ 2,000 years is because from Acts 2 to the end of time they couldn't, Satan couldn't deceive the Gentile church, the ethnos church. And then he says, now here's what gets me. My father and his friends would read this next verse, and I couldn't figure this out. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And as a teenager, I would say, what are they talking about? The rest of the dead won't live again until the thousand-year millennium is finished. And they got a millennium here for a thousand years. And the Bible doesn't say there's certain people going to be kept in the grave until the thousand years is finished. And they're going to be taken out. Are they going to be given new bodies at the end of that thousand years? This is the most confusing doctrine 
one of the most confusing doctrines that that preachers preachers are preaching this all over America. Men that call themselves conservative Bible believers. You guys are not conservative. And then he says, Blessed and holy is he that had part in the first resurrection, and on such the second death hath no power, and they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And we are reigning with him now. And the Bible even says, look at 1 Corinthians 4 and 8. 1 Corinthians 4. You say, Jim, this sounds confusing. That's because those doctrines those guys preach are confusing. Do I believe God gave us a book that we couldn't understand? No. For he's telling the Corinthians, and now ye are full, now ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings with us. Verse 8, 1 Corinthians 4. That word reigned is the word, let me give you this. It's past tense. It's aorist indicative. You have reigned and you shall reign. It's past tense. How are we running? Well, he's made us, God hath made us priests and kings in Revelation, the first chapter, and Revelation, the fourth chapter. He's made, go back to Revelation 4, or Revelation, the first chapter. You've got to connect all these things together. Revelation, the fourth chapter, or the first chapter. The first chapter, we'll read the last sentence of the fifth verse. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests. Hath made, made is aorist indicative, past tense. We've already been made kings. And look at Look, he says the same thing again over in the fourth chapter. In verse fifth chapter, in verse 10, and has made us unto our God kings and priests. That's Revelation 5 and 10. Has made is aorist indicative. It's past tense. He's already made us kings and priests. And we shall reign on earth. Future. He's made us kings and priests all during the 2,000-year period. The church is reigning. Let me give you something that's very interesting. All right. And the Bible says over in 1 Peter 2 and and verse Nine, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You are a priesthood now. 
What does a priest do? He offers acceptable sacrifice. Romans 12 and 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Nowhere in the Bible can you offer a sacrifice unless you're a priest. What do kings do? They they declare righteous judgment. Look not at the outward appearance, John seven twenty four, but judge righteous judgment. That's what a king does. We can only be kings because Christ the King is living in us, and that's the kingdom of God in us. You say, Jim, this is so much confusion. Let me tell you what's confusion. This doctrine they're preaching in these churches certainly is confusing. When zeros weren't didn't come into being until 800 A.D. We know Kilia comes after 999, but it's, they don't call it 1000 because they didn't have any zeros. It was Kilia, and how many ever Kilia is? It's plural. There's two Kilia at least. Could be three Kilia, but I don't think we'll live that long. As I study this, I've come to the conclusion of how confused the so-called doctors of theology are. I kept looking for something to tell me that 1,000 was the problem. And 1,000 wasn't the problem. It was zero, zero, zero was the problem. When I got to reading all these guys saying zeros didn't come into being, they didn't even know what to call that space after nine. So they called it a place. And it came to be called zero in time. That's an utter, that is, I saw that on a bookshelf one time at a bookstore. I thought, what is that about? So I bought it. And just because I'm teaching on this made me say, man, it has not, it doesn't have anything to do with millennium. Millennium comes from mil, meaning thousand, and anna, meaning years. Millennium is a false teaching. It's a false translation. I believe that. There's a lot of false translations in the King James Bible. It's not the King James Bible that's the inspired Word of God. It's the Textus Receptus, the Greek text in an interlinear Bible. That's why the main reason I bought, I have interlinear Bibles. I got two of them at home. The main reason I have it is to look at the Greek word and see if it says what it says in an English Bible. I don't even care about their copy over here. I don't even care about reading that. I don't even particularly care about the English right under the Word. I use the English to locate the Word, and then I pull the Word out, write it down, and study that Word. And see if it's... They didn't translate a lot of stuff right. I don't even believe in the English in an interlinear. If you don't learn to use... Use your analytic correctly. Write that. Learn your alphabet. And then learn the word and find out if that's what it means. Those guys that translated the King James Bible, 
I keep saying, let me say it again. Half the translators were Roman Catholics. And the head translator that was head of all of the translating room was Lancelot Andrews, a Roman Catholic priest. Can I say that loud enough? A Roman Catholic priest! (laughs) Do I trust Lancelot Andrews? No! I don't trust him. I don't believe any of them knew anything about numbers when they came to that because if they had it they'd have been real careful the way they translated that if you'll notice numbers are not listed in your Strong's Concordance not one or two it'll be O-N-A it'll be T-W-O but not one two three four one thousand it'll say O-N-E-T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D and trying to figure out numbers the way we've developed it over the millennia. You can't figure it out. And you know what I believe? I believe God had them do that so it would keep the world in the dark concerning the end of time. But the main thing that you can look at, you got to look at the time factor. Time factor about the end of time is the signing of the seventh trumpet when Christ says time is no more it's over and you can also look at the time factor in first Thessalonians we'll look at that real quick in first Thessalonians here's it see what they say I know what they say I was raised in an independent Baptist preacher's home and I know they say that his second coming is going to be a silent coming and nobody will hear it but the saints. Y'all have heard that, haven't you? You've heard that? Only the saints will hear, hear the last trump. And so, in one of the favorite verses of those independent Baptists that I was raised around is in First Thessalonians. The fourth chapter. I've said this before, but I think it takes saying it more than once to get a hold of it. All right. Inventing our numbering system took a lot of genius. They would try something and eliminate it and try something else and eliminate it. They tried little figures. They tried little triangles. He's got a lot of that in this book. The nothing that is the natural history of zero. He's got a lot of those. I wish I had this on. He's got a lot of these ways they counted. Like I put some of it up the other day. What I do with my pen. Here it is. Like this. This is where they would count. Then they'd have it down here. They'd have it meaning so much. They'd count these under this. And it it would just... This was their counting system. They didn't have 
boy, if they could have figured out 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. They had to figure out how to get that zero in there and what to call it. It means empty. Without a zero, you can't get into high numbers. That's the whole point. And they go. he goes into some calculus in here. He goes into a seesaw that I've used in algebra. I can't, I can't find it. But it's just, it's astounding when you see some of this stuff. And he, the way they counted was so strange, you'd have to take a course in it to understand it. The point I'm getting at, There's no millennium. There's no preacher of rapture. We're going to be changed to the last trump. And here in First Thessalonians, this this is what the independent Baptists taught. And the Pentecostals. They would teach that time would go and then you'd have a preacher of rapture. Rapture before the tribulation this would only be for the Jews in the tribulation and then you have a thousand year reign thousand that's what they taught it didn't make any sense what I was wanting to ask them what do you do when the, when the thousand years is over does Jesus come down and say say oh everybody okay everybody put it in high gear we're going to go into heaven now Okay, I'll put it in put it in first gear and spin out going into heaven. I don't even understand that. Just crazy. And they they quote this and they'll say this is a silent coming. This is what they would quote. And they would quote verse thirteen, first Thessalonians four. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Asleep means the dead in Christ. Their bodies are over there in a grave. That you saw or not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also who are dead in Christ will God bring with him. He'll bring back the spirits and they'll hit the ground, take their bodies and go out to be with the Lord. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, and every Baptist I've ever heard preach this, they'll say, this is a silent coming, which nobody will hear this voice but the, but the dead, but the believers, that we which are alive and remain, except they never did tell you, the word remain was the word perilipa. It means to survive. It doesn't mean you're walking around and you're remaining, working your job, going fishing. That doesn't what it means. It means you survive some great slaughter. It means to survive. We wish you're alive and survive. The great slaughter of the church at the end of time shall not go before, prevent, 
Pantano, P-H-T-H-A-N-O, P-H-T-H-A-N-O. P-H, T-H, A-N-O. It means to go before those that are sleeping in Christ there in the grave. will not go before them. Then he says, which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Nobody ever defines shout. This can't be a silent coming. Shout is the word kalima. K-E-L-E-U-M-A. It means a war cry. Now what is he doing making a war cry at some silent coming of Christ? Okay, man, attack! Oops, come here, come here quietly for seven years. It's idiocy. Where did that come from? A man brought this to America back in the 1830s. And he said a young girl had stood up in one of his services and she had said, I had a vision that Jesus was coming back in a pre-trib rapture. And so he started preaching it. And see, I Schofield got a hold of it in the Schofield Bible, and he preached it. And the Schofield Bible was one of the most popular Bibles among the independent Baptists in the 50s and 40s. You can't listen to C.I. Schofield. Now, so this is one of their main things to read and say, this is a silent coming. You've got to find those two words. It's not silent at all. It's just, yeah, I can't believe that people believe it now. Let me resume where I left off earlier, or last time I was teaching, about the kingdom of God. I'm reading to you some of the verses. How much time do I have, Mike? I'm, I'm reading through kingdom of God verses. All right. Let's go back to where we were. Where I ended up about the kingdom of God was in the 16th chapter of Matthew. The kingdom of God is the church. Why is it the kingdom of God? Because God was the king of Israel in the Old Testament. And if the kingdom of God is the church, then Israel and the church have to be the same thing. I don't know why preachers miss that. And Jesus, here in the 16th chapter of Matthew, he said, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the apostles answered, some said, in verse 14, some said you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say that you're Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said, Whom do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood hadn't revealed that to you, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you, verse 18, that thou art Peter, thou art Petros. You are a little stone. Little stone. 
and upon this Petra, speaking back of himself, upon this mountain rock, which is me, I will build my church. And I'll give unto thee, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But not only Peter, but everyone who preaches the gospel will have the keys to the kingdom. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's binding and loosing. Dio and luo. That's the same word. Dio bind Satan or Satan will be bound or forbidden from deceiving Gentiles for at least a 2,000 year period from in Acts 2 until the end I believe it will be to the end I don't know if the end of the time's coming about 15 years down the road I wouldn't be surprised I don't know I'm not setting a time. I'm just telling you this is what the Bible says. Now, this is the law of binding and loosing. Now let's go to the next chapter. Let's go to chapter 18, verse 15. We're going to look at binding and loosing one more time. Verse 15. Moreover, if thy brethren shall trespass against thee, this is binding and loosing. Tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two more witnesses. In the mouth of two witnesses, everything has to be established. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. It takes two witnesses to forbid someone in the word of God or put someone to death. If he will neglect to hear thee, tell it to the church. But if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. I had a guy used to come here. He handed everybody up, hand me an envelope. And he demanded that I repent to him. And I didn't say anything that he said in his letter. Nothing. He just lied about me. And then he says, I brought you before the church. No, you didn't. You gave me an envelope. You sent envelope to people all around the country. You lied. Verily I send you, whatsoever you will bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. The heavens was a term for the church or Israel. And whatsoever you loose, luo on earth, be loosed in heaven. Again I send you that if two or three witnesses of you shall agree on earth touching anything, that they shall ask, I tell. That's a very conditional word. You receive the things that we ask if you keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. It shall be done for them of your Father which is in heaven. For where two or three witnesses are gathered together in my name, it doesn't mean where two or three people are gathered together on Wednesday night. Like all the Baptist preachers have ever heard. He's talking about two to three witnesses. Therefore, am I in the midst of them to confirm this? Now, I can talk about that for an hour, but I don't 
really want to right now. I've got other places to go with this. Now, let's go over here to Kingdom of God and mark the first chapter, verse 14 and 15. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came unto Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Boy, this is really important. This is here because what is the gospel? Well, it's more than that. It's the resurrection of Christ in us. But if you look back at verse 1 of this same chapter, the beginning of the gospel, as the gospel was written, written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, this is the beginning of the gospel. Prepare you the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this verse 14 says, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came preaching, prepare you the way, which is the same thing. Prepare ye the hodos. The common Greek word for way. <coughs> Scripture tells us about two ways, a narrow way and a broad way. So Jesus came preaching the narrow way, which is the gospel. Equals gospel. So Jesus came preaching, prepare you the way, which was the gospel of the kingdom. And the Bible says over in Luke, the Bible says in Luke, the third chapter, verse 3, that John came preaching the baptism of repentance, of repentance, which is prepare the way there's only one way and that is the narrow way narrow is the word thelebo thelebo comes from the word thelipsis which is the common Greek word tribulation so Jesus came preaching the gospel which is prepare you the way the tribulation way you can substitute equals for equals. The tribulation is the narrow way. And Jesus came preaching the gospel, which is the narrow way. That's the gospel. And it's, a, it's the narrow way of the kingdom. And that's the baptism, repentance. Therefore, baptism has to be a blood baptism. Baptized comes from baptizo and bapto. So anytime you're going to talk about the gospel, you've got to preach being covered with the stain or die, being covered with the blood of Christ. That is the gospel. That's the narrow way. And that's the baptism, which is a blood baptism, which is a death.
So Jesus came preaching the death to self, the true baptism, which is the gospel prepare the way. And it's the same thing as the gospel in Mark 1. So, so the gospel is prepare you the way. The baptism, death to self is prepare you the way. And everything that death to self is, is prepare you the way. So when you read that verse again, verse 14 in Mark 1, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel or preaching the narrow way or preaching the blood baptism of the kingdom of God. So if you're going through the blood baptism, you're in the kingdom of God. Saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here, it's at hand. At hand means it's here. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Believe the narrow way. You can substitute narrow way anywhere you find the gospel. Because the gospel is prepare the way. The blood baptism is prepare the way. Now let's go to another verse. I don't know how these guys missed all of this. In Mark 3. Now you'll notice in Mark 3. Boy. This is going to get. This is going to go about a dozen directions. Okay. Is that all right? Mark 3.20 And the multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. For they said, He is beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, talking about Jesus. And by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them into him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan be cast out Satan? Now this is going to be talking about casting out devils. Let me remind you, in Luke the 11th chapter, Jesus said, If I cast out devils by the finger of God, and he said in Matthew 12, If I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God is coming to you. Is come means it's present tense. It is come now. And you're in spiritual Israel. If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. And no man, notice verse 27, no man can enter into a strong man's house. What does that remind us of? And reminds us of Luke. Reminds us of Luke, the 11th chapter, remember that? Luke 11. All right. And Jesus, you've got to tie all these things together. Luke 11. Now what this is going to do is take us to the scapegoat because he's mentioning something here the strong man's house and Luke 11 the 
scripture says Jesus is talking and he says in Luke 11 verse 20 if I were the finger of God cast out devils this chapter in verse 3 chapter 3 of Mark is talking about enter into strong man's house to cast out devils well Jesus said I do that with my finger when the he does that by writing upon fleshy tables of the heart his law he sheds abroad his law in the hearts of all the believers all the believing elect and then he says when a strong man armed keepeth his palace that's the same strong man he's talking about in mark 3 and 27 no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil the, his goods except he first bind dio the strong man and then he will spoil his house let's read in luke the 11th chapter when a strong man armed keepeth his palace his goods are in peace but when a stronger than he comes upon him that's Christ coming in to cast out devils or demons demonion and overcome him overcome N-I-K-A-O comes from N-I-K-E which is the word victory. And the victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. And faith is death to self. That's how you overcome the world. I've been asked lately. In fact, Tracy asked me before we started tonight. She said, what did you mean when you said, when you were about 60, you learned to believe your own message? What I meant, it took root in my heart somewhere in my early 60s. I've been preaching predestination all my life. But I finally came to a point in my early 60s. I said, what I've been preaching is really true. God is in charge of everything. I've gotten angry at two people in the early 60s. And since then, I haven't gotten mad at anybody anymore. Because I really believe that God is doing everything in every person. People that have come here and caused trouble, I believe God was in charge of them, giving me problems with them in order to mature me more. And if he wants to mature them, he'll deal with them. I've learned that everything that's going on is what God wants to happen. If you can learn to believe that, I was telling Dave today on the phone, I said, I don't fight anybody anymore. I never get angry anymore. Anger is you wanting to have your way with what God's doing with other people. You hear that? Anger is, I want my way with them. I don't care what your way is, God. So you find them. I won't fight anybody anymore. It's over. And you know what it does? Gives me peace. Makes everything quiet. I'm a quiet man out of the pulpit. I'm only real, real, just full of fire in the pulpit. But it's about the Word of God. I don't believe in, I don't believe in fighting anyone ever again. I'm just going to let everybody do what they do and say God has got them doing it.
If they cheat, he's got them cheating. I've had beat me up. People beat me out of money here a while back, and I just leave it alone. If you can live with it, I can live without it. Because God made you do that to me. God caused it. He's using you as a scourge to whip me with. If you can learn that, life is easier. If you realize every time you argue with somebody, you're arguing with the sovereign will of God. That's what you're arguing with. If he wanted them further down the road than they are, he'd put them there. And he might want them there, but it might take him five years to put them there, or it might might take him 25 years to put them where you want him. So I just leave everybody alone. So no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man. Then he will spoil his house. That's exactly what he says. And he connects this with the scapegoat. And then he says, when in verse 22 of chapter 11 of Luke, and when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, overcome is the verb form of victory, and faith is the victor that overcomes the world. So he overcomes a man by putting faith in his heart. He taketh from him all his armor, his things, his stuff, things that have given him protection, his cars, his houses, his things, his diamonds, his investments. His I went broke at 40 years old. I don't know what it's like to have nothing. Start from scratch. Wherein he trusteth and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathered not with me scattereth abroad. When the unclean spirit, which is the demon that he drove out in verse, cast out devils, demonion, we saw that demons were the same thing as unclean spirits in Mark the first chapter and Luke the fourth chapter. Demonion and unclean spirit are the same thing itself. And when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places. This is an exact picture of the driving out of the... And boy, when you get into this, it's an exact picture of driving out the scapegoat. And it's a, he goes into dry places... On the Day of Atonement, boy, this is going to take us into, I don't even know if I can get this today. This is going to take us into true fasting. And true fasting, let me say it, is cutting off the outer man. It's giving up self. That's what the spiritual fast is. That's what the 58th chapter of Isaiah says. It's getting rid of self. It's getting rid of that outer man. That's the true fast. It's a spiritual fast. And that's on the day of atonement. There was only one fast legally that God that God had Israel involved in. It was on the Day of Atonement. It 
was called afflicting the soul. The only fast. So anytime you find true fasting, you're going to find it in Matthew 17. That has to be talking about the scapegoat. Because there's a man, when you're reading that Jesus says something and somebody walks up to him and says something, examine what the man is saying to find out if what he's saying to Jesus is true. This man walked up to Jesus in Matthew 17 said, My son is lunatic. lunatic means moonstruck it comes from lunar did jesus believe that no he didn't believe that son was lunatic that means he would be believing in werewolves and and vampires and they go day wet they date back to those days before the days of jesus and it takes you and jesus said this kind G-E-N-O-S comes from genesis which means nativity or beginning comes from genomai means causing to be G-I-N-O-M-A-I and genos means kinfolks this kind goeth not out but by prayer bind to the will of God and fasting. When Jesus said that, that's a reference to the Day of Atonement driving the scapegoat out and he goes out into the wilderness. They take him to the east gate, driving him into the wilderness, going east, and he goes to where there is no water. He's out in the wilderness and they want to take him out there and run him off of a cliff and kill him. And that's the one they laid their sins upon his head. This is very figurative speech. And he... So when you've got the scapegoat there, and so when he says prayer and fasting in Matthew 17, the only fast in Israel was on the Day of Atonement. It was called afflicting the soul or anah, A-N-A-H. It means to give up self, to humble self. Self is the problem. Can we get that in our heads? That's been my problem. That's why I quit fighting people. I won't fight you. I don't care what you say. If one of my enemies comes up, that used to be my enemy, I say, you're not my enemy. You're you or your enemy. You're your own enemy. Because you're wanting to fight. When you're fighting, you're fighting for self. Aren't you? Somebody can beat me out of money. I say, well, I'll learn not to deal with him, won't I? Anyway, I can't get through all of this. So, we'll go back to chapter 11. This is heavy-duty stuff. When the unclean spirit, verse 24, is gone out of man, he walketh through dry places like the scapegoat, seeking rest, seeking anaposis, to a place to rest up, finding none, because there's no living water out there in the desert, and living water is the truth. This is very figurative. 
He said, I'll return to my house where a stronger man came along and threw me out, but I'm not growing. You have to grow in order not to go back to the old house where you were. My father didn't teach any deep, deep theology at all. He would just get saved, salvation, prayer, prayer, and, and nothing about living righteously. And he would cuss, and he'd get two befores after people, and he'd run people off the road in his car. And I kept saying, this is not Christianity. And I was right. It wasn't. And because I wasn't raised with any in-depth teaching, I went off out in the world and got in my sin just like this scapegoat coming back to the house. And when he cometh, he find it swept and garnished. It was a clean body. Then goeth he and taketh on him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. The last end is worse than the first. I got much to say on that. I'll come back to this. I run out of time. I hope you can see the figurative language in this strong man's house. It describes the scapegoat. I'll come back to the fast. I may come right back to this same section because I'm seeing things that's going in many directions. They're coming into my head. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message and for truth. I pray you will give us strength to continue in this word. I pray for the strength of the flock. Lord, help them to understand. God will... I pray that the flock will grow, that you'll send us to avenues for this ministry that we haven't discovered yet that we can reach out to a world and give them this truth, especially to the elect, predestined family that you've picked out. Give us strength to continue. Give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. I hope that wasn't too much. I felt like it was awful strong. Anytime you find a priest, a high priest going into the Holy of Holies anywhere, it is on the Day of Atonement and there's a scapegoat involved. And that's what carried their sins away into the wilderness, figuratively. if I was going to get that thing through to you about zeros but it's just to let you know there is no thousand year reign Sheldon what are you doing besides doodling what are you doing brother Sheldon D-I-N-G. See you later, Dick.
Take care. Okay.